Welcome to the Talking With Tech Podcast. My name is Chris Bougay, and today I'm here with Rachel Madel. Rachel, what's going on? Chris, I have a, a story to share with you. Hit me up with this story. I'm eager to hear about it. And I, th- I actually talked about you. <laughs> I was doing a consult, and I was like, I need to talk to my bestie, my AT bestie, Chris Bougay, who I also co-host a podcast with. Um, I also shared your book, by the way. So let me dive in. I got the opportunity to do, I'll call it like an assistive technology consult, because the student did not need AAC. I've kind of shared on the podcast before. I know about assistive technology. I've learned a lot from you, Chris, and all of your amazing books. And, um, you know, I feel pretty confident introducing some of those types of technologies with the students that I work with. But when it comes to doing like an AT assessment or consult, I still feel a little like, what am I doing? Like, do I know everything? I'm not really sure. So anyway, I had the uh, kind of opportunity present itself where I was asked to, you know, do a consult with a a young man who um, has visual impairment. Um, and they, someone recommended me cause they're like, Rachel Madel knows about kids with visual impairment, which I do have students with cortical visual impairment. And so I, maybe I know more than most, um, but by no means do I consider myself an expert in, you know, visual impairment. But anyway, that's how I got the, the, the referral. And I started talking to the family and I was like, okay, what's going on? And basically Uh, This student has visual impairment and optic nerve damage, and it makes visual processing really challenging for the student. So he is uh, non-ambulatory, I think 18 years old, and essentially is having a really hard time with reading because of the visual processing element. So he's not really able to see uh, and process the letters. Now, he can a little bit. So when he has an iPad Pro in front of him and he... um, has access uh, with his hands, although some fine motor challenges at times, um, has an iPad Pro, has things kind of magnified for him on the screen, and he's able to read at some level. He also has literacy skills because he can, uh, you know, if you spell a word to him, like he can listen to it and tell you the word that was spelled. Um, And so, you know, he has been able to learn some literacy, but uh, the family feels like he's been kind of at a roadblock and a standstill um, just because of his visual impairment, not being able to visually access, um, you know, his coursework and, you know, reading materials and things like that. So is, is that enough like foundational information? I feel like I kind of went over everything, right? Do you have any questions? At, at this time, I do not have any questions. Well, let me just say, has his vision stabilized at all? Like, do we know exactly what his vision is or is that still sort of a question mark? Well, it's, I, and that and this is where like, I'm not a vision specialist. I don't know a ton about vision. I know low vision strategies. So I am very familiar with how we can make a environment and uh, tools more visually accessible, uh, you know, to people who have visual impairment. Um, As far as his individual diagnosis, I'm not quite sure. It seems like it's been pretty stable though. Um, They've tried to work with vision therapists in the past um, and it just, he hasn't had a ton of success um, just being able to kind of recognize the individual letters and, you know, basically the 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 family was telling me by the time he kind of gets halfway through a longer word he's like kind of lost like 
you know, what he's already started reading and decoding. And so, um, you know, I think that he has like some sight word, you know, recognition and things like that. But when it comes to longer, more complex words, he's just struggling with the reading again, visually accessing it, but he has very good literacy skills and auditory, uh, you know, and even working memory to hold on to the letters that someone's spelling and put them, you know, together and to be able to say the word that's being spelled is actually was quite impressive. He actually did that for me. Um, he had a caregiver that was with him, uh, that is with him for during school and during his, you know, homework time and those types of things. And he's like, watch this. And he's like, B-A-N-A-N-A. And he's like, banana. And like, it was just like this like crazy thing where he could listen to pretty rapid fire spelling and be able to say what the word was. Um, So he does have literacy skills. It's just like the actual, like visually being able to read was really challenging. Okay. And you said he's 18? Yes. 18 years old. Okay. And so is he still in school? Yes. So he's in kind of a, I believe in like a transitional program. Um, So he's still getting access to, you know, curriculum based types of assignments and things like that. And he still has homework and he's going to school, you know, throughout his day. Um, It's more of like a transitional program though. So he's like, I think, you know, working more on like life skills and things like that, but he still has like homework assignments and like classroom assignments. I like asked, actually asked them to pull it up and I took a look and it was like, you know, a reading passage where he was expected to kind of answer questions. Um, most of which like he's doing like multiple choice and things like that. Okay. Let me ask what technology does he use currently? Well, he has an iPad pro, um, to do his classwork, and it's they're using the kind of magnification um, so he can zoom in and the screen, you know, applications and things like that um, are zoomed in for him. But other than that, like he doesn't really have any technology that he's using. Um, he did show me his ability to use voice dictation. Um, so we pulled up iMessages on his iPad Pro and I was like, send dad a text message. Um, and so he uses voice dictation um, independently to, you know, uh, write a text to dad. Um, and I saw that kind of happening. But other than that, like he wasn't really utilizing any type of technology that I knew of. The way you phrased something made me question. You said, um, it, how did you say it? You said the, the, the zooming. Is he independently zooming? Like is he, because you said there's some fine motor. Is he doing like, you know, the two finger uh, expansion to zoom in or to... Or no, is it someone else doing that for him? Yeah, I think that there's a lot of support from his kind of like the paraprofessional that's with him. Um, it's a good question. Like, I can't really remember um, seeing him actually do that on his own. Um, and a lot of times they're pulling up applications for him and they're like kind of getting into him to where he needs to go. Gotcha. So he's not really navigating things on his own. Um, it doesn't sound like anyway. But uh, iMessages, did he do that on his own? Like you, the voice commands? Like, mm, hey, Siri. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and then bring it up? Yeah, he did. Um, and I actually think he actually, he has some ability to use direct selection on his iPad Pro because he actually hit the little microphone. He touched the little microphone where you need to, like, where you can touch it and then, you know, say your message. That's pretty precise targeting, right? I mean, that's, uh, I mean, depending, it wasn't zoomed in, right? It's just like the default. Well, I mean, I guess 
Yeah, I mean, there's a default size, and then there's some accessibility features where you can have like larger buttons and make things bigger. It was it was zoomed in a little bit, like it was like like I looked at the iMessage and it was like whoa, it took up like the whole screen. Um, so there was like the magnification there, but yeah, I mean, he does like I said have some fine motor. It's just like it's a little bit hard for him uh, to select the text. Okay, let me make sure. So the, the iMessages might have been zoomed in. Is the keyboard larger too? Or was it like as kind of the standard keyboard? Uh, that's a great question. I feel like everything was zoomed in. Everything was was bigger. Although he didn't really use the keyboard, though, because visually he has a hard time accessing the keyboard. So he's really just using the voice dictation. But he did see the microphone and finger isolate to hit the microphone. Yes. Which would be on like the bottom right of the keyboard. Yes. Yes. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Um, and then he's using the the voice command. Well, I guess he's using the microphone to construct his sentence, um, and then saying send. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. Got it. And then how was the uh, the grammar in the constructing of the sentences? It was a little challenging. So he had some missing articles and, you know, not because he didn't say them. Actually, no, he didn't. He didn't say a few of them. Like, I think he missed the and there were some grammar errors. But generally speaking, his message was understood. And I understood him. Dad understood him. Dad responded to the text message. Um, so it was a pretty cohesive communication interaction. Um, but definitely room for, you know, some improvements as far as grammar and, you know, articles and things like that. Awesome. All right. Well, look what 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 what's on your mind about this student? Well, I I mean, my my goal for the student was, you know, how can we get him more independently, you know, formulating because it feels when I talked to the family and the caregiver, they were like, yeah, we basically we scribe for him. So he tells us what to say and then we write for him. And I'm like, okay, but like I actually think there's technology that will allow him to to write for himself, um, you know, and so I kind of introduced the idea of talk and type on Google Docs. They use Google for their, um, they use Google for his classwork. And so I was like, you know, this is a feature that's built into Google Docs. So, you know, we can utilize that the same way he utilizes the iMessage voice dictation um, using talk and type to talk to the screen and allow it to type for you feels a lot more independent than, you know, having to rely on someone to, you know, write for you, whether that's handwriting or, you know, typing for you, um, just to make the student feel more independent because, you know, he's 18 and his, his communication skills were pretty strong. We had like a conversation back and forth and, you know, the worst part about it was like, you know, as we were kind of talking about the challenges that he's been having with reading, he kind of, you know, I sat next to him and I was talking to him and he was like, he felt very defeated. He was like, we've tried everything and like nothing's worked. And it just like broke my heart to think that like, here we have like this student who's trying to learn, he's trying to read, he's trying to access, you know, his, his curriculum and also lots of other things that, you know, I'm sure he wants to do. He's like, has a, you know, very intense curiosity and special interest with cars. Um, and so it's just like it, it broke my heart for him to say, like, we've tried everything and nothing's worked. And I'm like, 
not in 2022. Like there has to be some type of technology that, you know, can support this student and becoming more independent so that he's able to, you know, read and access all of the, you know, content about cars uh, and whatever else he's super interested in as a teenager. Um, you know, there has to be technology that can help support him. So what are you, you suggested the talking type, which I think actually is a, the, the name of it in Google is called voice typing. So if someone, if someone went, well, what is this in Google? It's called voice typing, but I, you had mentioned read and write for Google Chrome. I, you, you must be using read and write for Google Chrome because it's called talk and type. That's the, that icon on that toolbar connects to the voice typing feature of Google Docs. So, and it's called talk and type. Yes. So that was my first recommendation is like, can we get him more independently just writing, you know, formulating. And and I also just said, like, get him texting more, you know, like if he's like familiar with texting, I just want to see him formulating more and, you know, getting more practiced at that. Because, again, I think he's just very reliant on the people around him, um, you know, in order to communicate. And I think he just needs practice with formulation. Um, and I think that both, you know, the texting and the, you know, voice typing can be really helpful for him. Um, the other thing I, I suggested was the Chrome extension, Google, you know, read and write. Um, you know, has the text-to-speech feature that will read things for him, um, which I think, again, can just help with his independence and feeling like he can access, you know, any anything on the internet, he can then, you know, have read out loud to him. Um, he has an iPad Pro, so the other suggestion I had was the feature where you're able to take a picture of something and then highlight the text and then have that read aloud to you, um, which is a really awesome feature. Um, he actually loves cars, was going to a really awesome car museum the next day and so uh, everyone was really excited like we're going to get him to like take pictures of all the different you know plaques that you see at a museum and then he can listen to them and he can listen to them after the fact uh, which you know was really exciting you know and a really exciting idea is that anything in the environment that he's, you know, not able to visually access, theoretically, we could take a picture of and he could have that read aloud to him. I love these ideas. This is these are fantastic suggestions. Uh, yeah. And I think what you're referencing there is um, part of what you're referencing there is the accessibility features of spoken content on the iOS device. So there's a, a way that you can have text read out loud so text that you maybe you get on the internet you know maybe so maybe it's an article about cars and then he could have that text read out loud which is just again you don't need an extra tool it's just built into the ios there's also speak select which is there you'd actually you know if you're familiar with highlighting text on an ios tool um it brings up those little i don't know what they're called the uh, um yeah, exactly. You were, people are, they can't see us, Rachel, but they're, yes, the like the parentheses with the little dots on the, the cursors on either end. And that'll do that. I don't know that he'd be using that as much with the fine motor, but potentially um, that he could be selecting some text that way. But in, in general, spoken content using his auditory, since that's a strength, sounds like a great idea. Um, along those same lines, again, you mentioned literacy. I would be wondering about podcasts. Like, let's is there podcasts where he could be listening to content about cars and whatever else he's interested in? Um, 
And then that could then be a catalyst for who else could he be communicating with or writing about, you know, so maybe it's these podcast hosts of the car show that he listens to and he's commenting on their on their blog or writing them on their Twitter or Instagram in the same way listeners to the podcast our podcast the talking with tech podcast reach out to us and he could be talking to them yeah I love the idea of podcast I actually didn't recommend that but I feel like that would be a good one just like any type of spoken uh, content where he can access you know, just by listening, I think makes a lot of sense. Um, He does have some fine motor challenges. So actually highlighting the text and kind of editing and revising feels hard for him. Uh, I had recommended potentially an adapted stylus. And actually I shouted out, uh, let's shout out Lydia Dolly. So she has uh, created the NAD pen. Lydia was on our podcast. Uh, She's an AAC user and a a entrepreneur because she created a this uh, adapted stylus called Nad Pen. Um, so I actually pulled that up during the console and was like, "Try this." Uh, this was, a, you know, created by uh, an AAC user who, you know, needed an adapted stylus and just wasn't really happy with anything that was on the market. So um, I feel like an adapted stylus would be something that maybe can give him more uh, access to manipulating the screen, highlighting the text, things like that. Um, and so that was one other recommendation. And then the last kind of recommendation was let's at least try to make things um, high contrast so like changing the background of the Google Doc to be black having the the text be white or red or yellow and just talking to him like does this help is this better is this worse you know you know really just trying to optimize what he's looking at because you know he's looking at a white document with you know black letters it could be if we do kind of high contrast that he really benefits from that um, and he's able to better access and better read um, so you know all of those kind of suggestions were the ones that I gave Chris did I miss anything like me not knowing a ton about assistive technology like always feel like is there something that I don't know about that I'm missing here no I mean what you the, the way you approached it and the, the way you described it sounds like you um, uh, you gave him great things and gave that family great things to start looking at. It's always a good start. Uh, could there be more? Potentially, probably, maybe. Um, and I know I am notorious for something Something I've learned over the years. Like, I used to just bring the entire wheelbarrow and dump it on someone's front lawn. You know what I mean? Like, oh, here's all the things you could do. Blah, 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 blah. And it felt overwhelming, you know. Uh, instead of hey, here's a little flower pot. You know, why don't we plant one little flower, see how that goes, and then before I bring a wheelbarrow of dirt to dump on your lawn, um, I'll just keep bringing more flower pots, and eventually we'll build a garden, you know. Uh, I feel like that's a good start. The last question that I might have, though, for this is, if the student's in school and he's... 18 maybe would be staying potentially longer not graduating maybe maybe he's a senior and graduating this year um is there a team that he's working with that because when you're talking about fine motor and you're talking about vision i think about a teacher of the visually impaired i think about occupational therapy uh clearly with the uh language and construction of language and the literacy that you mentioned are we looking at some sort of structured literacy approach for helping him continue to learn language what is the ongoing support look like from him from a school perspective or beyond 
Yeah, this consult was kind of happened very quickly. I like um, it's actually the shared office space that I'm in. Um, I was approached and it was like, okay, like I have a spot tomorrow at three. So I like didn't have a chance to kind of collect any information from the team or collaborate with them in any way. Um, But definitely it's on my list of things to do to try to get access to what's happening for the student and, um, you know, all the different supports around him that could potentially build up all these, you know, skills for him um, and really have a good game plan moving forward so that he's able to you know reach his goals whatever those goals might be um, I don't I don't think he actually even really is clear about his goals uh, which I think could be something that we you know dive into in a later date um, trying to figure out like what do you want to do you know and it's probably like learn more about cars because he's really interested in cars and talking about cars and seeing cars and all of those things so um, just getting more clear I think um, that's something that I definitely want to do is figure out what his goals are and how I can best help support those goals um, with you know the technology piece one last question before we move on and that is the iPad Pro flat on the table or angled angled it was angled so I wonder about um, the, the right angle, you know, and, and again, that's exactly what a team like this might be playing with is, is it the right angle? Are you getting reflection off the, the fluorescent lighting behind you? If we angled it this way and made it more vertical, could you get uh, even better pinpoint accuracy? And again, it's nothing you could do in this short amount of time, but it, it's a great what you did. Totally, I have deemed you a, I'm giving you, I'm going to send it in the mail, your assistive technology junior camper badge. Uh, you totally... <laughs> I need that. You totally earned it. Yeah. I need that that vote of confidence because I was like, what am I doing right now? I mean, again, like I do, I use these tools with my students, but I think like the idea of a consult is like, well, you need to know all the things, which I think kind of translates to a lot of people's feelings about AAC, right? It's like, you need to know all the tools. Not really. Like you need to know some and know where to get more information um, and just start with what you know. Well, can I tell you something that I really loved about your approach is that you looked at the tools that were already available. So um, really, it was like, what can we use on the screen? What can we use that's built into the device? What tools do you already have there? And then there was like one other suggestion, like the NAD pen or a stylus was adding in other technology that didn't already exist. So um, I feel like that is often a good start because so many tools do come now with really robust and detailed accessibility features is that that's really a great place to start. So again, well done, Rachel. Well done. Thanks, Chris. And you can't know it. I, I, there's no way I would ever say I could ever know everything about assistive technology. It's really more about the approach and your approach was spot on. Amazing. Thanks for the, the confidence. I feel a little bit better boosted from a assistive tech all-star like you. Now, it's funny that you were talking that this banter was about a um, someone who's moving into either an adult or moving into an adulthood because that's what our interview is today. Yeah. So you had the uh, pleasure of interviewing Tammy Allshuler. Um, I'm so sad because I was supposed to be at that interview and I wasn't able to make it. Um, But I am excited for our listeners to hear all about this. Tammy does a lot of work with adults and it's definitely an area that we want to continue to build out on this podcast. So if you know of anyone, uh, you yourself work with adults and you have uh, some really great insight to share, uh, we'd love to build the podcast out a little bit more on the adult side. Chris and I obviously work in the pediatric population, but 
AAC users who are kids eventually become AAC users who are adults. So, you know, definitely having that perspective is really valuable. And Tammy was able to share that. And she works in a hospital setting where you and I mostly work with either individual families or in a school setting. So not just adults, but it. So it's a totally different setting. And Tammy, actually, if that name sounds familiar to you, has been on the podcast before. This is her second time on. But this episode is just with her where she's been on with other people before. So we'd like to welcome back to the podcast, Tammy Altshuler. Hi, I'm Chris Klein. I am the Vice President of Impact Voices. We are excited to announce Impact Voices inaugural live hangout in celebration 2022 in Arlington, Virginia, October 7 and 8th. This is the only conference which the AAC and business community will be able to network together. We are going to impact AAC users to dream big, empower them with tools to gain employment, and connect them with employers. We are going to impact employers by educating them about the AAC community, empower them with providing resources to hire an AAC user, and connect them to the AAC community. Please mark your calendars for this exciting conference. For more information about Impact Voices Inaugural Live, Hangout and Celebration, please visit our website or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Welcome to the Talking With Tech podcast. My name is Chris Bouguet, and today I'm here with Tammy Altshuler. Tammy, am I saying your name right? You said that perfectly. Uh, well, maybe that's because I practiced because you and I have chatted before on the podcast. You've been on the podcast before, but today we wanted to invite you back on the podcast sort of as an open platform to talk about what it's like to be a speech language pathologist working in a hospital setting. Now, people know if they listen to the podcast, I, I have not worked in the hospital since my grad school days. So 20 years ago, you know, um, so my experience is very outdated and very limited, um, but you, this is your day-to-day practice, right? So tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Thanks. Thanks for having me here. Um, I am a speech-language pathologist in the hospital setting, and I'm also a clinical specialist in patient-provider communication. So that includes a lot of AAC, but I also help patients with health literacy and language differences and uh, patients who have neurogenic communication difficulties kind of do all of that communication access. Uh, I work with pediatrics through adults and there will be a day where I see an 18 month old and then later on an 103 year old. Um, And I work with people throughout the continuum of care. So sometimes right from the emergency room to the ICU to rehab and then helping them with discharge planning for communication. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, maybe a a way to approach this today is to... um walk us through it. I mean, what does your day look like when you said you have have pediatrics through adults? Um, If someone needed AAC or maybe, I don't know, I'm not even sure the right way to ask the question for you. Maybe you can just tell us about some of the challenges you face or what it looks like for, for when someone were to come and meet you for the first time, you know? 
I think I'll start back to what it took to get to this point where we are today with AAC in the hospital. Uh, I've been at NYU Langone Medical Center for eight years. And when I first came in, it was a little antiquated. You know, the communication boards were probably from the 1970s. I could tell by the picture of the television, all in some file cabinets stashed away. And I was told, well, we give these out and just drop them off when a person needs a communication board and a nurse reaches out to us. And so kind of hit the ground running from day one of, okay, there's so much we could do. We need a color printer. We need a laminator. So I wrote a grant proposal to get funding for all of this. We created a communication toolkit for our pediatric ICU. So it has low tech to high tech devices Um, And then we really worked on how to get the orders to actually see the patients. So that took a lot of buy-in or engagement from our physicians and nurses to understand, well, why would I want to work as a speech pathologist with a patient while they're intubated and unable to speak? So let me make sure I understand. Let me make sure I understand the, the the jargon and maybe break that down for people who might not know. When you say the orders, so the way it might work is that, uh, and correct me at any point here if I've got this wrong, um, a patient might come in, see a physician, that physician and would not necessarily see you or any other therapist, they would see the physician. The physician would then order speech language pathology and that's how you would be involved. Is that, am I getting that right? Exactly. I can't just go in and see any patient I wish. Uh, I need the order to get me there. Um, gotcha. And getting so, those orders can be challenging. Yeah. I mean, that that is, um, I could really see that, that there'd be a lot of professional learning that the doctor would need to know like, oh, oh, I didn't know. I mean, I didn't know that you could maybe help in this situation, right? Is that, and that's so, so is, do you do a lot of professional learning to teach the the doctors? I do. I front loaded a lot of it several years ago, but now for our doctors, I do monthly teaching for our residents. And so they get hands-on learning for uh, sensitivity for what it's like to not being able to communicate in the hospital and then learning the tools and strategies. Um, And also our nurses, our pediatric nurses have to go through communication training as part of their orientation. And Tammy, just again, help frame this for me. So let's say you're a patient that comes into the hospital and something's in you, if you had seen the patient, you'd be like, that is someone who needs AAC. Are we talking about a short period of time while they're in the hospital? Maybe something's impacting their ability for speech, or are we talking, um, well, yes, that's true, Chris. It is this portion of time, but then it's beyond that as well. We do ongoing care once they leave the hospital, or is it both? I think of it as three categories. So we have the patients who come in and they've been able to speak their entire lives, and all of a sudden they're not. So that could be because they have a breathing tube and they're on a ventilator, or they've had a medical condition or surgery that now leads to the inability to speak. Then we have another category of a lot of children who come in frequently uh, to the hospital and they have baseline developmental delays or disabilities, and maybe they're not bringing their communication devices into the hospital for many different reasons. And 
uh, I'm trying to work with them on how can I best reduplicate the communication system they're familiar with, with the tools and resources that I have. And then we have another category of patients who are baseline having difficulty with communication, but maybe have never had that addressed ever in their lives. And so this could be people coming in from group homes. So these are older adults, maybe in their 40s or 50s or 60s, or children who come in and just for some reason, communication has not been addressed. And then we also have people coming in from all over the world to our hospital for surgeries and procedures, and they're, they don't have access to AAC uh, where they're from. So, so in all of these situations, this would all rely on a doctor to say, we need to bring a speech language pathologist in. And just let me ask a clarify, you're nodding. Let me ask a clarifying question here. It, I think in some places in a school situation, you might call in the AAC person um, to, to help, right? Are you an AAC person or are you a general speech and language pathologist? Like, do you do swallowing? Do you do, I do it all, Chris. Or are you like, no, we have a swallowing person and I'm the AAC person and I'm, there's, there's another person that does other stuff. How does it work in your neck of the woods? I, I do it all. Most speech pathologists in the hospital setting are these general practitioners. However, I do much more AAC now than feeding and swallowing. So I'm probably about 80% AAC, 20% other. Got because when you get the orders, they say, oh, let's give this one to Tammy. Or or, is that how it works? Or is it just, you know, there's a queue and you just get the next one and whatever the next one is, the next patient, you get it. Or is it assigned based on your interest, your skill level, your your passion about something? I don't know. how, How does it work? Probably all of those. Um, It's definitely my position. I'm in a more management position and I've started this program from ground up. So it's kind of my project, but at the same time, I'm off today from work and I want to make sure that when I'm not there, that our patients still have a way to communicate. So everyone's been trained on AAC. I just pick up most of those patients. All right. So we were talking a little bit about those challenges and one challenge that I certainly heard and that might be the same between a hospital setting and a school setting would be the education of the people that you're that are meant to know about AAC, not necessarily direct therapy with the client or this the family members, but educating the support staff, right? And it sounds like you've done some work in that area. Like again, in this case, educating the doctors to know to even to, to contact you. You know, it's sort of like, hey, teacher, you should know that a speech language pathologist could help you with AAC. Oh, I didn't even know this kid could use AAC. It sounds like a similar parallel. Absolutely. And I think some of the hardest work has actually been amongst our own colleagues within the speech pathology department, um, that speech pathologists in hospital settings focus a lot more on feeding and swallowing. And it takes a lot to convince them that communication is another medical priority. And so uh, it's it's a lot of, um, I think of those Bugelman and Miranda, like, participation barriers. So it's like the resources and attitude and skill and knowledge. And so I really had to try to break through those barriers for us as a department to uh, really understand that we all need to provide AAC. And we've come such a long way and it's amazing. It, It does take a lot of 
uh, a lot more attitude change than actual knowledge change. Yeah. You know, I feel like that's the exact same thing. And when Rachel and I do presentations together and when I do presentations alone, uh, one of the things I always start with is the Pygmalion effect and changing your attitudes and how outcomes are impacted impacted by our biases and that those sorts of things. So, um, and what my experience, I'll be curious to hear yours is, um, people move like once you, once they are become aware of this, the attitudes do there's always anchors. There's people that'll never change. I, 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 <laughs> I can hear the people shouting in their radios in the car right now saying that, but I, for the, the most people, when they're brought to this realization, they go, Oh, okay. And that's why maybe now you feel a little more confident to, um, to take a day off, right? Cause you have trained these people. Is that fair? How do you, how do you feel like the, the, the conversion rate is from therapy, from teaching people about this to actually understanding in it and uh, implementing AAC? I absolutely agree. I think that um, my model for mentoring has been to try to meet the person halfway. Do they want to co-treat with me? Do they want to just observe me? Do they want to lead the therapy session? But I try to look at their skill set and their confidence level and match them with a patient that I know they'll have a success with. And most people, once they have that win, they feel good. And they're like, wait a minute, this, this felt really good. I want to do this again. And then just keep scaffolding upon their skills until they feel really great about this. And, and more people feel confident in something, the more they want to do it over and over again. Mm -hmm. And Timmy, my guess is that it's like a, I mean, I've been to the hospital before, so um, that there's maybe a, uh, it's not just the doctors, right? That there's nurses and I can imagine a nurse whispering in a doctor's ear about, hey, what do you think about getting Tammy in here? You know, like, or making some sort of suggestion of that way, way. Is that, is that fair or is it no, it's usually just the doctor, Chris? The nurses are the most amazing advocates because they're the ones with the patient's all day. There's a 12 hour shift and they're constantly with that patient and they know the patient best. So they're the ones who are asking the doctors for orders. Going back to earlier, we do have, you know, systems in place now for some units we've identified as high needs. So our pediatric ICU, we're now part of the admission order set. So anytime a child comes to the pediatric ICU, we get an order to see them. And it could be for feeding or swallowing or could be AAC. We're able to do a quick screen and see what the child needs. If they, they might not even need us at all. Um, but also I'm really annoying and I got involved in a lot of committees. And so we have a committee for delirium and I got involved with that because communication has a role in preventing or treating delirium and early mobility. So if our physical therapists are going into an ICU and getting these patients sitting at the edge of the bed or walking down a hallway, they're certainly able to communicate. And so now I team with our physical therapists and uh, work with them on communication while they're ambulating with their patients. Uh, we also have a palliative care team. And so that meets the need of working with patients on end of life communication or communication for decision-making or legacy messaging. I could go on, but there's, there's different avenues of kind of attacking on how do we get the orders instead of just the nurse asking for the order. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like that screening that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And that I, it totally makes sense, right? Like, let's get someone in who might know more than I do on this particular topic to just experience the client or the patient for a short amount of time and be like, yes, we need to go deeper or no, 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 we're good. Things are good. Um, so let me ask again, I, with my school experience, we advocate a lot for this group decision for AAC uh, in a school setting, right? In a long-term thinking you're going to be using AAC for a long, long-term. What does the selection process look like for you? Like, how are you figuring out, okay, this is, like you said, here, the students, or this per students, yeah, <laughs> this patient is ambulating around. We can certainly, they might not be using their, um, their speech as their primary form of expression, but they're moving around, which means we can, they could be pointing, they could be accessing switches, they could be, what is your, um, what is your selection process look like? Uh, so we do a feature matched assessment. Um, the thing is for us, it's, um, the challenge is, is that our patients are constantly changing and sometimes in a really good way for the better, they're improving. And so one day they might be accessing a communication board via eye gaze. And then I go see them the next day and they're able to point. Um, but then some people have uh, a step back. And so then we got to go back and figure out something else. And so this constant monitoring of what their abilities are for that moment and for that day and being able to try our best to anticipate those fluctuations as well. Mm -hmm. Do you have certain universal go-tos like a letter board or something like that? And again, that might be really, um, ignorant of me to even suggest that like or do you have something that is like all right base before i even get in there everyone knows grab this thing off the shelf we're going to try this you know that sort of like a, in in school terms we think of it as tier one tier two and tier three supports so tier one is something every patient gets tier two oh these groups of patients gets tier three we've done an individual assessment to figure out what this individual needs so do you have stuff like that Absolutely. I usually start off with something more low tech. Um, I'll bring in an alphabet board or a picture communication board. We also have them in 16 languages because especially in New York City, uh, we have to have bilingual communication boards. And I use that as a starting point. And it's not because I think lower tech is better for any reason. It's just a lot of our patients in the hospital, they have so many electronic devices around them that are just beeping and there's just so much noise and so much stimulation. And so sometimes the lower tech option is really just best for them in that moment. And for our geriatric population, I can give someone this really cool iPad with, you know, pro loco for text and I, I feel really good about it. And then they just want to write instead. And so really just meeting them where their preferences are as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, again, that seems like um, uh, th- that seems consistent with school where we would maybe have something that we would uh, apply universally, but then make individual customizations and go with family and and student preferences uh, to say, OK, yeah, you know what? I, I'm like, I know students that if the, where I, it, it, it pains me because I could see how they could be so much faster if they just did this, if they worked on this, but I'm not them. They're happy with what they have and they're, they're comfortable. And the effort to learn the thing that might make them a little bit faster isn't worth 
uh, isn't worth their time. They'd rather just, you know, it's like, okay, I've presented it to you. I've shown you that it can be done this way faster, but, um, but it's your, it's your, it's your, it's you, you get to choose. Right. And I feel like you're saying the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes I prefer to just text someone versus calling them. And so that happens a lot these days. And so, yeah, I, I get to choose my preference. Yeah. Cool. All right. So what other, uh, let me just one last thing to wrap up the question, or maybe I don't know if we'll wrap it up or not, but in my mind, it might be wrapping it up is this professional learning challenges going back to that for a second, a question that I have about the hospital setting in today's day and age. And again, in parallel to the school setting is that we are experiencing right now at the time of this recording, the great resignation, right? There are teachers just the way I like to put it, they're eating, they're eating, they're leaving They're I'm, I'm out. I'm not coming back. Um, that was a problem before the pandemic. It's certainly worse now, meaning a problem for AAC use because we just spent uh, a year coaching you on how to become this awesome, great communication partner. And now you're out, you've left, you know, you're going to go start a coffee shop or something. And it's like, wait, wait, I'm sure those skills will help you when someone comes in with AAC, but oh my gosh, we just spent all this time. Is that similar in the hospital setting? Are you finding uh, a high turnover? Was it, was, was there a high turnover rate that was impacting your professional learning carry through? Absolutely. Um, not so much with our speech pathology department, but definitely with our nurses. So years ago, I trained our entire pediatric ICU nurses, and they knew how to use these communication tools and, and strategies, because it's not just the tools, of course. And they were so good. And then in the past year and a half or so, we've had a mass exodus. And so that RN orientation that they go through when they first start their jobs for the new ones, that really captures them. And it's not the extensive training that the other nurses have had, but at least it shows them that we take this seriously. And that communication is such a priority that you can't even start as a nurse until you've learned about this first. And so I think that culture and that mindset starts there. And then again, I'm annoying. I'm always on the unit and just, you know, oh, I see that patient is intubated. They have a breathing tube. They're on a ventilator, but they're awake. Have you tried this with them? Something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is challenging. I think that it's not just the exodus, but for the people who are still here, we're also burnt out and just everyone looks so tired. And so communication might not be seen as much of a priority as just, I need to get those two feeds in, or I need to take care of the wounds and that goes first. And then communication somehow falls behind. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense to me. Um, and it sounds again, I, the reason I say it makes sense to me is that it sounds familiar to me. It sounds, you can't walk through a school on a Monday and they're like, is it Friday yet? Oh, geez. You know, or, uh, um, how, what month can we start the countdown on the chalkboard, chalkboard, or the interactive whiteboard or the, the, uh, dry erase board that says how many days left till summer break. You know what I mean? Like, or I'm just hanging in there. And it, it sounds like that's how, and I have some friends that are nurses that have said the same thing. Like, Whew, it's tough every day, you know, it's tough, tough to come back every day. Um, and so um, what are some things we can do to make that experience better, Tammy? I try to do very immediate real-time learning at the bedside for the nurses. So I try to take the brunt of the work as best as possible and say, let me just work with them and figure out a communication system and strategies. And when you have a moment, come back 
and I'll teach you how to do this. So that really helps. Also bedside signage. I'm constantly putting up signs, especially now near the vital signs monitor. So communication is vital. That's my little catchphrase I'm using. And so you're looking at their heart rate and their respiratory rate. Look at how they're communicating too. And it's a very obvious place that everyone looks at when they enter the room. But also uh, in our hospital, we have these glass doors uh, that you need to enter to go into each individual patient room. And when COVID started, um, some doctors and I, we started writing on the glass doors because they were writing all of the patient information and vital signs and ventilator settings and, and hospitalization course. But we started writing really personal information like this person is a father and his daughter's wedding is coming up and he really wants to get out of here to be there for the wedding. And so now I've started writing the person's communication tools and strategies. So before they go into the room, they see, they know how to communicate with that patient in front of them. That is awesome. That is awesome. Because again, another parallel that I'm seeing here is that people typically to get into education because they care about other people, like they care about kids and who they are and, and want to see them grow and change and, and get better. Right. And that sounds exactly what doctors and nurses and speech language pathologists and anyone else working in a hospital really wants is to connect with, um, connect with people, see them improve, see their function, improve, see their life improve. And so I, the day-to-day -day mundane that can easily fall to the wayside. Like you said, like, well, I just got to get my, uh, my work done. Right. And lose the person in the process. And what it sounds like you're doing with that signage and the glass doors is bringing that person back to the forefront. Yeah. And I'll even uh, tell us to be careful and remind myself to be careful of the language we use, even when we're talking amongst each other about the patient, starting to use the word patient less and say that person in room, whatever needs this, or the language that we use about how people are going through their medical course. You know, you'll hear in the ICU, that person is really circling the drain. And that means that they had a really rough night and we thought they were all going to die. And it's just awful. It's awful the things that we say about our patients or the stroke patient or um, just really trying to shift how we think and speak about our patients. Again, that is a huge parallel. What's happening in the school setting is that we, and in fact, our, I've got to write a book with a couple other authors. And the first section of that book is all about the language we use because it's so impactful, not just on the other person, but our own mindset and how we approach things, right? And our own happiness. So um, I think that's really, um, that's really wise. I mean, we say that in the school setting, uh, growth mindset. So what that means is if you heard uh, um, someone say, I'm just not a math person or I'm just not a whatever person. I'm just not a basketball person throwing the word yet at the end, right? But that it's the same idea that it's our language shapes our thought, right? I'm not just a math person yet. If I say that, maybe someday I'll become, uh, I have a greater chance of becoming a math person than if I have this defeatist attitude and fixed mindset that I can't do it, right? So it sounds sort of similar to what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So Tammy, what are some other challenges that you're facing and what have you done to overcome them? Um, I think in the hospital setting, we focus so much on patients being able to express basic needs and wants. And so that could be, uh, I need the bathroom or I'm thirsty or something like that. And just also changing that mindset of our patients, our people in the hospital 
are much more than what they need and what they want. And so um, I go back to this example of, I worked with a child who came from another country and she was five years old, unable to speak and never had exposure or access to AAC. And so within maybe a minute of meeting her, I could just see the potential that she had. So I brought in a Big Mac, a single message speech generating device. And all I did was record hello. And she immediately said hello to her family, to me, to anyone who walked into the room. And that was it. That was the mission for the day. Every doctor, every nurse on that floor, I sent a message to, I said, you have to go into this room and say hello. So this child could say hello back. That meant so much more to her to be able to say hi than to be able to say that she was thirsty because her parents know when she's thirsty, like they're able to anticipate her, those basic needs and wants. And there's definitely a place for working on that, but just bringing back that social connection and that human experience of there's much more that we need to say than just those basic things. Um, tell, tell us more. What happened to this girl? I'm in, I'm into this story. <laughs> so it's a good story. Yeah. I actually keep in touch with her and her family still. Um, so she, she was with us for a few weeks, maybe three weeks in the hospital. And um, by the time she was discharging, she was using the GoTalk Now app and navigating between page sets and uh, linking, uh, you know, making sentences, basically. It was incredible. So uh, we have um, outpatient AAC evaluation and treatment opportunities. So got her set up with that. And now she's in a school and learning literacy and doing really well. But her first experience with AAC was in that hospital setting. Amazing. She saw the power of hello and then said, what else can I do with this? And you gave her the additional tools so she could expand beyond hello and look where she is, how how far she's come. And what's fascinating in that story is you said she was there three weeks. So, I mean, the amount of change that happened in three weeks sounds incredible. Yeah. And so that was a single message, you know, generating device for hi, but then I've also worked with kids in the ICU or adults uh, who are unable to speak, but use that device for, um, I need suctioning. And so when someone has a breathing tube, they often need to have those secretions suctioned out. And so I've had very young kids or very older adults, uh, say I need to be suctioned. And because they're able to participate in their own care, and say they need this cough assist or suctioning that they might not need that breathing tube for as long as the pulmonary team anticipated because that basic need is met with the ability to communicate. That's huge. It's huge to be able to participate in your own care and then things be adjusted, decisions adjusted because you were able to communicate what, um, what your needs were. Oh, that sounds Amazing. And it also sounds like if you could communicate to the nurses, they could make their job easier, right? There's less them having to interpret what they might have to do and provide more care than necessary when someone can say, I don't need that. Is that fair? Absolutely. When we started our program in our pediatric ICU a few years ago, I did a pre-program survey of just gauging the nurse's understanding of communication access and how important communication is, but also how it impacts their day. And uh, before and after the program started and the survey results were just tremendous. So the nurses said after 
a few months of having access to these AEC tools that the nurses felt more job satisfaction. And that's huge um, because a lot of the burden is on them to try to figure out what their patients are trying to say. Well, that's what keeps them coming back the next day. You said that at the beginning of the interview, like finding that win. It's like, yeah, you know, what you really want, I, I know what I want at the end of the school day is to come home and talk to a significant other or at least reflect on my own day and go, all right, what? not just complain about the things that went wrong, but tell you about the, the things that went right. Oh my gosh, I had this, this student today that uh, knocked over this water and we were all laughing and it was super funny and whatever, right? Same thing. You want the nurse, a doctor to come back home and talk to their, their significant others or family members or just reflect on themselves going, yeah, that was awesome today when blah, blah, blah happened, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Tammy, let me ask you this. So again, this is a little bit of uh, an insight into Chris. When Chris was a little kid, my mom worked as an office manager at a doctor's office and she um, would bring home pens and other doodads and gadgets from um, uh, from different salespeople that would come into the office and be selling the latest pharmaceutical thing to the doctor and trying them to get to approach this. I have friends that have grown up to be either pharmaceutical sales reps or at work not in pharmaceuticals, but in actual like machinery. Like here's the, your uh, here's your, your hip replacement thing, screws. You know, here you go. Um, and there's this seems to be uh, a sales component to to this. And I, I, the, to, when I say to healthcare, um, it, let me ask you: Is do you find that happens with AAC in this in this hospital setting that there's a the latest new whiz bang that someone's trying to sell you or share with you and you feel pressure to adopt it or I don't know I could be making something up because I'm using my own experience here but um, does that happen where there's pressure to use a new thing or you hear about a new thing out in the on a, a blog or a, and you're like oh that's not exactly how it works you know like that kind of stuff. Yeah. And it's interesting. It's usually coming from the doctors. And so they'll come to me and they'll read an article from NPR or something about BCI, brain computer interface. And they're like, oh, we need to do this here in our ICUs. I say, that's wonderful. We're not quite there yet with the technology and the research, but hopefully in 10 years, like I'll be the first one to say, let's bring it in. And so Often it's technology that's not quite ready to be applicable in the healthcare setting um, for our patients need to be able to reliably use it every day. Um, but yeah, sometimes there are things or, or people just love iPads and they're great. I love them too. But at the same time, it's, you know, it's not always the best tool for uh, people in the hospital to use. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I say that in the school as well, is that uh, anytime you, whatever solution you come up with, whatever tool you, you put in place, whatever strategies that go with those tools, um, there's also going to be some sort of um, other consideration. So for instance, yeah, we want this robust language system. Look at it. It's got thousands of words on it. It's also like 10 pounds and we're talking about a kindergartner. You know what I mean? Like they might not be able to lift that 10 pounds and bring it around. Okay. I'm being, 
I don't know that it, there's something that we use as 10 pounds, but the point is, is that, um, or, you know, let's do something simple. We want to put a key guard on this. Okay. Well, they break frequently and they fall off and they're hard to clean. And yes, it will, might help them, but know that it's also going to cause these other issues. And I feel like maybe that's something what you're saying here is a doctor might see something like a read an article or talk to a, a colleague or scroll through Facebook or something and be like, oh, that's the thing. And it sounds great on the surface without looking at all of the, um, yes, yes, that's a thing. And you should also consider these other things if we're going to talk about putting it in place. Yeah. And so what I try not to squash their excitement because I'm just so happy that they're they're starting this conversation and that they see something outside of this hospital setting and they just want to bring it in. And so I'll often say like, we're not quite there with BCI, but Hey, let me show you this Toby Dynavox, this eye gaze device that we have. Did you even know we have that? And, and then I usually wow them. I have them, you know, spell out their name on it. And they're like, Oh my goodness. Why aren't we using this with more patients? And then I'm like, well, why aren't you telling me that you have patients who need to use this? So I try to just meet them where they are with that. Yeah. That seems like a great win. Right. And then they're just like, Oh, okay. So we already have some really cutting edge, interesting technology that can really help people. How come I didn't know about this sooner? So you use it as a catalyst for, for pivoting the conversation to let me show you what we do have that really kind of works really well. It's funny when you first started the question, I thought you were going to ask me if I feel like a salesperson. And I was oh. going to say, yes, yes, I do. I feel like I am constantly like doing an elevator pitch or just trying to get that, you know, that sale, that win, um, that customer. But um, I teach a graduate course in AAC and I tell my students every year that I feel like AAC is one of the areas not just in speech pathology, but in rehab in general, um, or the allied health sciences, that we are probably the biggest advocates. I feel like I have to fight so much for AEC where I don't feel like, I don't want a PT listening to your podcast, <laughs> right in and say, she's wrong. But like a PT has to fight for uh, DME, like durable medical equipment, like a walker or cane or something like that. But for some reason, we have to really sell AAC and we really have to advocate for the person who needs it. And I hope that that's not always the case and that it just becomes, at least in, in the hospital setting, just standard practice that I'm not starting a program and that this isn't special for this patient, that every patient just automatically has access to communication and that this is what an accessible healthcare setting looks like. Well, Tammy, how do you think we get there? What are some steps we can take to get there so that it's just standard practice and not like, like what I'm hearing um, you just uh, maybe a little undercurrent of is the day Tammy leaves, does everything fall apart because I'm an advocate for it? Do you know what I mean? And I certainly feel that I'm sure a lot of speech therapists feel that in their school districts as well. It's like, I've just put so many years into this and I see how beneficial it is. What if I leave? How does it become just standard cultural practice in this institution that this is just what we do? And then beyond the institution as a field in general. That's such a great question. Um, one that I'm not quite prepared for. Um, I think that we talk a lot about pre-service education and training. And so in our AAC classes, um, we're going to get some people who will enter into the healthcare setting and that they have this background in AAC um, I could go on a rant on how AAC is not a required course for every graduate program, and that's just 
not great. Agreed. Uh, <laughs> but also pre-service education for our our medical residents and our medical students and our nurses and just. I've learned that, you know, I love presenting at conferences like ASHA or ATIA, but I also have to get to those other conferences for nurse, practici- nurse practitioners and physician assistants and doctors and nurses, um, because, yeah, I would want them to adopt this as standard practice as well. Wow. Again, that's another parallel because I say all the time, like, and I try to, to walk the talk here is go to general educators. I can't have an inclusive environment. If I'm only talking to special ed teachers, then I often find myself at it at an exclusively special ed conference, you know? Um, so trying to be in that same thing, like I got to branch out. Tammy, let me ask you this. Do you, what do you feel like the, the patient themselves or the family members can do to drive this culture? You know, I mean, some one of the things that um, that I think makes some change in some schools, and certainly it's been in the headlines in the last couple of years, has been parents going to school boards or parents being an advocate for uh, for the type of education they want their child to have. Um, and so they, th- uh, do you see the patients and family members like coming into a, like, do you see some future 10, 10, 15 years, 20 years down, down the line where everyone just sort of comes in and goes, all right, what's the method of communication? What do we do? How are we doing? My, my, uh, everyone in schools has a, access to a communication device, right? So here, like, as the, as the culture in schools comes up, will we have family members that can advocate it for it? So that just becomes the practice in, in hospitals as well. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think that self-advocacy is definitely something that we can try our best to encourage people to do. And there are, there are laws, right? We know with ADA and the Affordable Care Act, and I could just keep listing laws on why um, patients are, uh, have the right, the legal right and responsibility to have access to communication. Unfortunately, this is the person who is not able to speak and has that much more of a challenge to self-advocate. So really encouraging the families to do this. Um, a little while back, I worked with a patient um, and he's given me permission to share his story, but he, um, he is deaf and lip reads and uses sign and now has ALS. And so he is no longer able to sign. And he came into our hospital a few months ago with COVID. And so during other hospitalizations, because I know him well, uh, we would wear clear masks so he could lip read. But with COVID, we had to wear N95, so then he could no longer lip read. And so we had to have a tablet in the room for him to have a video remote interpreter for ASL. It's really hard when you switch up ASL and ALS. <laughs> That's quite a bit. Um, and, uh, and then he was using a text-to-speech app on an iPad and um, while he was awaiting uh, an eye gaze device. And so it was really challenging because despite all of the signs and all that I've posted and all of the training and all of my documentation, of how this patient communicates, I would see many doctors come into the room and totally bypass this patient and go right to his husband and talk to him instead of including the patient in the, in the conversation and medical decision-making such as palliative care and hospice and, and all of these options for him. And, uh, 
they were very frustrated. And I finally said, like, I'm doing the best I can. But if you feel so strongly that you're not getting the access to the communication you need, I need you to complain. And they did. And they went to, that's how change happens. And I kind of feel like, I don't know, is it wrong to call myself a whistleblower or something like that? But um, I, I, I advocate for it in the spirit of this is how change happens. And people, administrators and leadership, they respond to this kind of action versus little speech pathologists here nagging and saying like, we need to do this. And so I hate going through that avenue if we don't have to, but we need to empower our patients that sometimes this is how it gets done. Yeah. I mean, that old adage exists for a reason, right? The squeaky wheel gets the grease. And so what we can do is uh, we can shout it from the rooftops. That change happens a little bit slower than, than if we can whisper into the ears of, of a client, a patient, a person who is going to be like, Hey, I'm the one being serviced here. And if, uh, so many administrators, uh, hospital and school would not want to have bad press, right? So, okay, what can we do to make you have a better experience? And then that change just lasts from it from then on, you know? Yeah. All right, Tammy, as we wrap up here, I like to ask uh, a question about what you're curious about. Like here you are, uh, fascinated by AAC, driven to, uh, with a, with a purpose to bring communication to everybody. What are some things you're curious about? You're questing after you're doing some, your own research on, you know, what, what's got you, what's piqued your curiosity lately? Um, too much. So I'm way too busy with all of those things. Um, but I'd say, uh, number one is the idea of implementation science. And we know that, the research has been done that patients do better medically and personally when they have the ability to communicate. And so how can we uh, implement the change that we know we need in healthcare when it comes to prioritizing communication? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um let me ask, sorry, I have one last question and that is, Rachel likes to ask at the end of her interviews, if there was one thing you could put on a billboard for every person, let's say person, you could say speech language pathologist, but every person to see, what would you want that billboard to say? You, I mean, you're in New York City, you have access to these billboards, right? You could do it tomorrow, you could have it up on a billboard. What, what would you want it to say? I would say, I would reference what I said earlier, that communication is vital and that our patients need to be able to communicate those basic needs and wants, like I said, but just like with that young patient, just they need to be able to communicate hello. They need to be able to connect with those around them and be included and participate in their own care. So communication is vital to wrap that up. I totally, totally picture that, Tammy. I see communication is vital with a little picture of you in the corner holding like a communication board or something like that. Yeah. that And the vital sign, like a little heart rate. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, We need need (laughs) stickers. We need magnets. I need it on the back of my laptop. I need it everywhere. That sounds great. (laughs) All right, Tammy. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And is there any final things? Uh, How can people reach out to you? Um, I am still learning Twitter, but they can find me at Tammy, T-A-M-I underscore Altschuler, A-L-T-S-C-H-U-L-E-R. Awesome. We'll make sure we have that link in the show notes. And thank you so much, Tammy, for being here today. Thanks for having me.